or page 927, if you would like to use the Bible in front of you, Acts chapter 18. Nine hundred and twenty-seven. With a sermon entitled Faithfulness in Enemy Territory. read the chapter in its entirety. After this, and so that is the famous scene with Paul at the Areopagus in Athens. That's what we uh, studied last week, his speech on Mars Hill. After that, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack of Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God. Contrary to the law, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancreae, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. 
Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's inerrant word given for our instruction even this day. Now, last we left Paul, as I mentioned, he was in Athens. Athens was the intellectual, the philosophical, the, the religious center of the then world. All now, now moving to Cor- Corinth, uh, that would have been something of the commercial capital of the world. So he's leaving the philosophical, religious idolatrous capital of the world. Now he's coming to the commercial capital of the world. All major trade routes intersected through Corinth. And that, by definition, if you think all these merchants coming in and out, in and out, that lent itself to anonymity. And anonymity uh, naturally bred licentiousness and immorality. It was a corrupt city. Uh, Corinth had a, a temple dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Uh, the temple employed... This is no joke. This is a historical record. 10,000 cult prostitutes at this temple in Corinth. And so that's why there was a saying, if you were a woman from Corinth, if that was said to you and you weren't a woman from Corinth, it meant you were a prostitute. It was um, not a compliment. There was also a common Greek verb, uh, Corinthiazane. You can hear Corinth in, the, Corinth in there, Corinthiazane which meant to play the Corinthian, to be the Corinthian, and that too was a euphemism for fornication. Um, So back then they said you play the Corinthian. Today we say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's what you should think of when you think of the Corinth of the ancient world. It was the Las Vegas of its day. And this is where Paul finds himself. The Lord's prompting and providence has plopped him in this bustling city and his mission is to preach the gospel well that's going to go over like a lead balloon right in in a city like this Uh, to this consumeristic people who are obsessed with commercialism materialism paul will denounce these things and he will say no your treasures must be laid up in heaven Uh, to this sensuous people Uh, morally loose society. He must teach of the holiness demanded by God from every one of us. It's no easy task that Paul has here. And in fact, sexual immorality will continue to plague the Corinthians even after they become an established church. And we find that when we read Paul's subsequent letters to them. It was no easy mission for Paul in Corinth. And Paul gives us a window into how he himself felt when he got there In the opening of 1 Corinthians, it's chapter 2 and verse 3. This is what he writes. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's how Paul felt as he's in this 
a morally corrupt city, fear, trembling, weakness. How did he manage through? How can we, as we find ourselves um, in a world that uh, does not know God, a world that rejects the things of God, even nominally does, does not uh, adhere to um, the, uh, the uh, laws of the Lord, how can we find ourselves faithful to God, to his word, to his ministry, when we are in enemy territory? There's two things that Paul does that are worth our reflection and then our implementation in our own life, our lives. The first thing that he does is that he relies on strong partnerships in ministry. He relies on strong partnerships in ministry. Has ever caught, caught your attention that generally when Paul concludes uh, one of his New Testament epistles, at the very end, he's got, he rattles off a long list of people that uh, he wants to send greetings to or people that he's sending greetings from. And, and oftentimes he's calling these people co-laborers in Christ, co-laborers in, in the ministry. Uh, Paul doesn't do this alone. He doesn't want to do it alone. And anytime he finds himself alone, he's distressed. So we get to the end of 2 Timothy, the last letter that Paul writes before he's to be executed. And this is what he writes to Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to, Dala- uh, to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. I'm, I'm all alone out here. I need help. I need, I need partners. And then he goes on to say, Luke alone is with me, which I've always made me feel bad for Luke. Timothy, I need you so bad. Everybody left me. Well, Luke's here, I guess, but you know. The idea, though, is still the same, that he needs gospel partners. Now, two of the partners who are closest to the Apostle Paul, uh, those who are most frequently, one of, one of the, the pair that is uh, most frequently um, given a Pauline shout-out, is this powered couple, Aquila and Priscilla, or more often Priscilla and Aquila, uh, the wife seeming to be the more significant member in society, at least three times, or three times we do find this. Romans 16.3, greet Prisca, that's Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16.19, Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house sends you hearty greetings in the Lord. That's, he's writing to the Corinthians. You would know these people. They were there with me. The end of 2 Timothy 4, greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. And so here in Acts 18, we find out how Paul met this duo and how they became friends, these fellow workers in Christ Jesus. It's quite clear how they hit it off. Look at what they share in common. First, they, were, uh, they were all uh, had the same trade. They were tent makers or, or leather workers. Uh, beyond that, they came from the dispersion, which is a way of saying they were Jews who weren't from Jerusalem. Paul's from uh, Tarsus. And it says Aquila is from Pontus. Presumably his wife also is from Pontus. Um, In addition, they had recently experienced persecution. Paul's been on the run basically the last several chapters of Acts. Everywhere he goes, there's a mob that wants to kill him. And we read in verse 3, I'm sorry, in verse 2, that Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. So why aren't Priscilla and Aquila in Italy? Why aren't they in Rome right now? Why are they in Corinth? It's because the Emperor Claudius 
had ejected all of the Jews at that time. Historians, uh, looking at different records that were kept, are pretty uh, uh, certain that the reason Claudius had this mass expulsion of Jews was because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, There's record of Jews talking about this one Christus, and it appears that that was causing a stir, whether they were being converted or whether they were just debating about it. Either way, Claudius said, a plague upon all of your houses, get out of here, I don't want you. And so, they share all of that, but most importantly, what united them above all else was that they shared their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're not told outright if they were already believers, like I said, if that happened in Rome, or if they became converted under Paul's ministry. Um, but the next time we read of them, verse 18, what are they doing? They're, they're co-missionaries with Paul. They're all in. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers. He set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And then verse 19, then they came to Ephesus. We would do well to share Paul's um, insistence of gospel friendships and partnerships. Real embodied friendships. Uh, people that you can literally do life with. That is to say, not friends that you make in the um, chat rooms of the video games you play or uh, friends who really just follow you on Instagram but you have no idea who they are, where they're at. By God's design, the Christian is meant to live in a community. Uh, and this is for our good. We cannot fight the world, the flesh, and the devil on our own. We're not strong enough for that. But there is strength in numbers. Paul would later remind Timothy to flee youthful passions. This is 2 Timothy 2.22. Easy to remember. 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Don't do it on your own. Do it with others who also have called on the name of the Lord. We can't do it on our own. We, we won't be strong enough on our own. Uh, boys and girls, you could think of, of the, the snowstorm that we are coming out of and you're getting out some winter clothes that you haven't had for a while. What's going to keep your hands more warm, more warm gloves or mittens? And the answer, even though I don't think they look as cool, is mittens, right? Because your fingers are touching each other and that radiates heat off of off of your fingers and keeps your hands warmer where if you wear a glove they're separated and they stay colder that's like the church when we come together we warm each other we strengthen each other as opposed to being set apart and so your spiritual life will go better for you when you live it in close proximity in the close company of serious gospel partners now, suppose you disagree with that statement and that assessment. Maybe you think you'll be fine just on your own. You're a private person anyway. You're kind of tend towards introversion. You've never felt the need for many friends. And so you think, I've been doing fine without close gospel partners. Why should I start now? Well, that's when we remember that ministering alongside others is not only for our good, It is for God's glory. David Clarkson was an assistant minister to John Owen. We know the name John Owen. We probably don't know the name David Clarkson. But even the fact 
that he has an assistant minister, Mr. Owen understood the importance of gospel partnership. And David Clarkson wrote this. He said, suppose you truly do find more comfort or benefit in private worship than in public. Even so, the glory of God is to be preferred before your advantages. You must prefer what most advances God's glory, not what most promotes your own interests. The Lord is most glorified when his glory is most declared, and it is most declared when it is declared by most. A multitude, the church. God is glorified when the saints come together, and not just kind of in in some sort of anonymous blob of people who meet and they're in the pews and you kind of can all keep to yourself that way and then you leave and you do your own thing. No, you come together as a family. What do we just say? It's a grenade join. We are one body. You don't ignore the parts of your body. No, that's what glorifies God is when we recognize that, when we come together, when we don't think that we can do this on our own or we don't try to co-opt the public ministry of the church for our own private devotions, but we say, I need to be a part of the church. This is God's design. This is what Paul needed. He needed people fighting alongside him. This is what I need because I have such a fight as well against this world of sin. Now, this partnership that Paul establishes with Aquila and Priscilla, it's not only an encouragement to him as he he comes to Corinth in the weakness, fear, and trembling, but it also ends up having this multiplying effect because as he trains Priscilla and Aquila, you see that they are prepared then to train another servant later on, Apollos, that's in the latter half of the chapter. Paul has taken them to Ephesus, and they disciple Apollos, who will go on to be one of the most effective preachers in the first century. He's already known to be an effective preacher. You look there in verse 24 of the chapter. Um, he was an eloquent man. He was competent in the scriptures. He was already instructed. He's fervent in spirit. And interestingly, it says in 25, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Then we're told later that they explained to him more accurately. So he knows the main points. He's got the main things down. What's he missing? Well, the deduction would be what we read at the end of verse 25. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. So he had the main points down. He knew Jesus was Lord. He knew Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He could preach a message that if you believed it would save you. He just had his baptism theology a little off. We still have people like that today. It's okay. And Priscilla and Aquila, they say, come, let's, let's disciple you about this. And... Here we just see, again, the benefit of gospel partnership, where we are better formed and and matured. Everybody is better off, and you will be better off for it, too, at any time. But I think especially 21st century America, to spend more time in the public assembly of God, more time with Christian friends, more time working alongside people for the sake of Christ, than you spend time in or with the world. It's how Paul survived Corinth, and it's how we will survive Kalamazoo. So that's the first of two things that we can learn from the Apostle Paul. How do we remain faithful in enemy territory? He relies on strong gospel partnerships, but there's a second thing even more important. Yes, we rely on strong partnerships, but we must rest on even stronger promises from God's word. That's the second thing. 
rely on even stronger promises from God's word. Because friends may fail us, but God's word will never fail us. It will never fall away. Now, God's word has been the driving force of Paul's mission. And that does not change in Corinth. Verse 5 says he's occupied with the word of God. He's preaching from the scriptures every week. He's in the synagogue. He's he's, um, reasoning with the people to, to come to faith. And even when the Jews in the synagogues reject him, he doesn't reject God's word. Paul keeps that word and he goes on to, to Gentiles who will believe. And we see many are converted. Paul has proven himself to be the one who stands on the word of God. But then to strengthen Paul and to sort of nerve him on for the trials that are ahead, verses 9 and 10, Paul receives this special word from God. Luke simply says it's, well, let's look at it here. In verse uh, 9, Luke simply says it's the Lord. But generally, when Luke uses that term, he refers to Jesus. We can assume it's the same Lord that he encountered on the Damascus Road. This is Christ speaking to Paul. And he gives them a special vision with a special message to inspire Paul. We might think, well, I wish I could get a vision. I wish I could get a special message from God. That would certainly help me with the troubles I'm facing. But I want to let you know and encourage you, brothers and sisters, that while this vision was for Paul, Luke wrote it down. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote it down for all our benefit. So that the words spoken to Paul are just as much for him as they are for me and for you today. We need them just as badly as he did, and perhaps even more so, because I I do not, well, I'll speak for myself. I don't think I was as confident in the ministry as, I am as confident in my ministry as Paul was in, in ministry. Notice four things that uh, the Lord speaks to Paul here. The first is simply, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This is one of a hundred and one times that God commands us in the scriptures to fear not. Now, what does that tell us? I think it tells us something significant. Uh, Because God doesn't waste words. So if he's going to say something a hundred times, it must be important. And on the one hand, I think it tells us that we are indeed fearful creatures. But God gives reassurance so often because of what we're told in Psalm 103, that he remembers our frame. He knows that that we're dust. He deals gently with us. And so he comes again and again with this assuring word, do not be afraid. But on the other hand, on the one hand, it tells us that we are fearful creatures. On the other hand, the repeated call to have no fear, I think, acknowledges that there are fearful things in this world. Which leads to the second thing that Paul hears from the Lord. And that is in verse 10, when God says, for I am with you. Now, do you see what's happening here? Jesus doesn't say, do not be afraid because there's nothing to be afraid of. He doesn't say, fear not, you coward. He doesn't say, what is wrong with you? Why are you so timid and anxious? There is nothing scary out there. What does he say? Fear not, for I am with you. That's why you shouldn't be afraid. Not because there aren't 
scary things out there. Not because the world isn't terrifying, but because I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus told his disciples. We put our faith in the one who says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus said those words on the eve of his betrayal. He said those words with the shadow of Golgotha hanging over him. And indeed, it is only through the cross that his victory of the world has been secured. He died for the sins of the world, and he was raised again on the third day to secure a new world. One day would be ushered in. I have overcome the world, he says. And so if you have him on your side, why should you fear? Here's what James Boyce says, referring to John 16.33, when Jesus promises to have overcome the world. He says, these words were spoken on the verge of what surely seemed a defeat. But they were true then, and if they were true then, it is even more abundantly demonstrated that they are true now. Do you believe them? Do you believe these words? Is Christ the victor? If you do believe them, and if he is the victor, then stand with him in his victory. Possess that peace that he dispenses, and in your turn, you also will overcome the world. Does the world deride Christ's gospel? Well, so much worse for the world. Do circumstances press us down? Well, he's overcome circumstances too. Stand with him then. He is the king. He is God over all, and his name is blessed forever. Now, it's from this promise of of God's presence, I am with you, that Paul can take the command at the end of verse 9. This is the third thing. We said there's four things that we can find in this this promise, this word from God. And the, the third thing is that he says, keep on speaking and do not be silent. Now, I recognize I'm taking them a bit out of order, but the do not fear command um, and the, I am, or the uh, do not fear command and the keep on speaking command are unbearable if we don't have the I am with you promise, right? So, so recognizing that God is, is with Paul, now he can, he can better understand this, this charge, which is, don't stop speaking. How does that command strike you? There may be for some of us moments in, lives, in our lives where there's, uh, there's nothing we want more than to keep on speaking. Maybe when we're newly converted, we want to just tell everybody about this Jesus that we have found, that we've embraced, and we want to share him with everyone, and then we start to see the looks we're getting as we do that, or we realize our friends aren't calling us up as much to hang out, or, or maybe it's really awkward at the dinner table now, and we don't like that, and so we begin to speak a little less. We start to clam up. Speaking up, speaking out, that is hard, that's hard to do in, the, in, in a world where your reputation is on the line, maybe your friendships, maybe your career is on the line. But we remember we're, we're not doing this on our own. What Jesus is saying to Paul is sort of like a, rehashment of, a rehashing of what he said to his disciples in Matthew chapter uh, 10. Do you remember what he told them there? He says, you will be dragged before governors, before tribunals, and you'll have to give an account. But he says, don't be afraid. Why not? When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. 
Because God is with us, the command to keep on speaking, to keep on preaching, is a bearable command. He's the one strengthening us to do it. Just the other day, um, and Jacob wanted to help carry some things in from the garage, and I, I knew that they were too heavy for him, but he was adamant and he wanted to be a big helper, and I didn't want to let him down, and so I handed him, uh, I forgive his groceries or something like that, and sure enough, after two steps, he drops to the ground, he starts crying that he's not strong enough. He's not big enough for it. And so this is what I thought would happen now. I'm not only carrying the groceries, I'm carrying him too. But isn't that such the way of our God, our Heavenly Father? He gives us a work to do, and we want to do it. We're eager to serve, but, but our strength is never equal to the work. And then we sit down and we cry. But we find that our Heavenly Father, he picks up the work himself. And in doing so, he picks us up with it. And then the work is done. And it's done gloriously. Because our Father is the one who is completing it. So he says to Paul, I'm with you. Keep speaking. There's a final thing. Why is it so important that Paul rely and rest on these wonderful words from Jesus? Why is it so critical that he embrace the nearness of his God and and banish fear and keep on preaching? It's because of the final thing, and it comes in these words, I have many in this city who are my people. It's kind of like an Elijah moment after the Mount Carmel showdown. He's discouraged. He finds a tree and he collapses. Just kill me. I just want to die. My ministry is getting nowhere. And, Paul's, and God's word of encouragement to Elijah is, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. There's a remnant still, Elijah. Get back up and get to work. Friends, God never leaves a man behind. If there are people left to be saved, they will be saved. Paul needs to get back into Corinth and keep preaching because as implausible as it may seem, there's going to be a major church established in this, right there in the center of this commercialized, materialistic, immoral city. Vegas will be one for Christ. Get out there and start evangelizing. Get out there and start preaching. God has people yet in this city. Paul doesn't know it. The people don't even know it. But those whom God has chosen, he always calls through his word and spirit. There's nobody who misses the boat on being elect. It doesn't work that way. And that's good news for you this morning. Why am I up here preaching? Why am I up here speaking? Might it not be because God has many people in this city who still have to be saved? And might it not be that you are one of those people? And could it not be, yes, it must be, that today is the day that you finally believe, hearing the gospel proclamation, and you bow the knee, not to the idols of this age, but to King Jesus, the one who died to set you free. There are people that still need to be saved, and you might be one of them. Today is the day of salvation. Well, what's the result of Paul resting in these strong promises of God? It's twofold, and we close briefly with this. First, it prolongs his ministry. 
Luke condenses the narrative at this point in verse 11 to show us that what happens in Corinth is a direct result of Paul embracing by faith the promise that he received in that vision. So verse 11, we read this. Right after God says, keep on preaching, I have many people to save. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So how do we press on? How do we prolong our faithfulness when we're surrounded by faithlessness? We rest in the promises of God. They prolong our ministry. But there's a second thing that happens. It's in verses 12 through 17. Not only does God prolong Paul's ministry, but he protects him. Uh, These verses describe an an attempt by an enraged Jewish mob to bring in the Roman government to try, the civil authorities to try to punish Paul and to silence him. He's dragged before the judge. Again, this is Matthew 10. You will be dragged before governors, tribunals, councils. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say because the words will be provided for you. Well, it's even better than that here. What happens with Paul in this section? Verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, I'm throwing this case out. He doesn't even have a moment to defend himself. He doesn't have to. The Lord had intervened. And this is a powerful picture of your security in Christ, friends. You do not need to defend yourself when you have on your side the one who is your maker, your defender, redeemer, and friend. This is how safe we are in Christ. That while God has work for us to do, we will be invincible. Nothing can harm us. That was, that was the promise. I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. I have work for you to do, Paul. And until it's done, no one can touch you. Friends, that's true for you today. Until your mission is complete, you are untouchable. You are invincible. And if that's true, and it is, What reason do you have to be afraid? Our Father, we thank you for this word from Acts. We thank you how your word is is so applicable to us. And we see the many parallels between Paul's day and our own day. And we we want to reflect his ministry. We want to establish partnerships and friends that can encourage us and embolden us. But more than that, we want to rely on your promise and your promise is that we should not have to fear because we have you. And when we have you, nothing can harm us. Indeed, until our work is done, we are forever safe in Christ. Would you give us greater confidence in these, your promises to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.